You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. So we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter uh, 4, but I want you to turn first to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. I want to pick up a little something that Peter says in chapter 3 before we move on to chapter 4, something we didn't really cover because it kind of can get um, theologically convoluted. Not everyone agrees on what Peter's saying here, but we can get the, the, the gist of what he's saying. Um, we can pick up on the major theme of what he's saying, but I want to pick that up because I think it has to do with what he's trying to go into as he gets into chapter 4. So I'm going to start in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 18. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter, and I'm going to jump to, to um, uh, chapter 4, verses 12, and read that to the end of the chapter. Is everybody with me? So I'm going to read that. We are in our third um, teaching on suffering. Suffering is one of the major themes in Peter's letter. We saved all the suffering passages until right now. Um, so we've been doing a series inside of 1 Peter called uh, How Suffering Works. And today I want to talk about um, death to life, this theme of death to life that Peter is picking up on here. So let me start by reading verse 18 to you on down, and then from chapter 4 on down, and then I'll pray and we'll get started. Deal? Okay. <sighs> Suffering, always hard to teach on. All right, verse, um, verse 18. For Christ also suffered... Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, the righteous being him, unrighteous being all of humanity, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. I told you several weeks ago that this is probably the best sentence of the gospel in the scriptures. It's Christ suffered the righteous, him righteous for us, unrighteous, so he can bring us to God, that we can be in relationship once again with God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And this is where it gets crazy, and I won't even get into it because it's too crazy. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not, Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven at the right hand, God's right hand, with angels and authorities and powers and submission to him. Skip to chapter 4, verse 12, our text today. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised about the sufferings you're going through, Peter's writing. But rejoice, and as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue 
to do good. This is God's word. Let me pray. God, I pray that a, um, a sacredness would be in this space right now. I pray for um, a joining, a meeting of, of heaven and earth where we as your, as your people, as um, humanity would know that you, you've come near, that the things that we hear today from your scriptures um, would, would penetrate deep into our souls and the very things that we've been wrestling through, the pain that some of us have been under, the suffering that some of us have, have felt um, will have full meaning in Christ. I pray that you, God, would change us, God, to become like you. And Lord, we would come to realize that suffering is a huge part of that. I ask for grace and wisdom. When we teach on suffering, I know that there's so many people in this room and all over the world that are suffering. And there's some people in this room and all over the world that are suffering for the name of Christ. Because they love you, they're suffering. They've lost their homes and their jobs and their family because they bear the name Christian. And Lord, we remember them now and we stand for them and we ask, God, that you would, that you would enact justice and righteousness. And God, that, that through their suffering would bring about the glory of Christ and your bride. We pray for them. We remember them now. And we ask that we, as we are privileged to live in this city and in this country, privileged to be able to openly worship you. We ask, God, that the suffering that comes into our lives, it would not be for, for, for naught, it would not be in vain, but you, God, through our suffering, we become more like Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. Church, I would like to start with a, a quote, a very famous, famous quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, and he writes this. We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God, C.S. Lewis writes, shouts in our pain. How exactly does God shout in our pain? How exactly does God use pain and suffering in our lives? I mean, that's what C.S. Lewis is really talking about. What he's saying there is that God, more than any other thing that, that, that's, that's really on this earth right now, what God uses most in a deaf world that is so inoculated and, and, and like under narcotics of pleasure, what God uses to wake up a deaf world is pain. How does God use pain in our lives? How does God use suffering and pain in our lives? Now, I think we can all understand why God would use something like pain in our lives as opposed to pleasure, though God does give us both. I think the reason is clear in what C.S. Lewis writes here in this quote. See, we can ignore pleasure. We have almost all of us this consuming desire for pleasure, and we can consume pleasure. We can just take it, and we eat it, and we spit it out, and it's no big deal. Pleasure can be even a bit of a narcotic it can numb us out to the realities of life. And I think we can all intuit why God would use such a thing as pain in our lives to get our attention, to rouse us, to teach us, because pain must be attended to. When we're in pain, we ask really deep questions. When we're in the midst of pain, we ask excruciating questions that we would never ask in pleasure. 
When everything is great, we don't, there's certain things you don't ask yourself on your honeymoon. Like it's just too nice. Like you don't, you don't even think about things. But when you're in pain, you start asking questions, why? You, you start asking for explanations. You start ask, asking explanations to give reason for your pain, meaning for your pain, meaning for life. What am I here for? Is this all worth it? Because pain must be attended to, as C.S. Lewis says. We must do something with pain. And thus, God uses it in our lives. God uses pain in our lives, but how? How does God use pain in our lives? Thomas Merton, a, a Trappist monk who wrote this beautiful little book called No Man is an Island, said this. He said, suffering merely accepted, suffering merely accepted does nothing for our souls except perhaps to harden them. If you merely, what Merton's saying is, if you merely accept suffering, if you just take suffering and suffering comes on in your life and you just like take it, you're like, oh, that's life. You're gonna suffer in this life. And we think that, well, if you suffer through pain and loss and you kind of make it through and you just get through it, it'll make your skin hard. It'll make you tough. But actually, what Merton is saying, will actually harden your souls. It'll make, you, it'll make us indifferent. What he says is suffering merely accepted can dehumanize us. It can make us into animals. Merton is saying it's not mere endurance through suffering. It's not mere self-denial that makes suffering and pain good for us in the way that God wants suffering and pain to be good for us. But the testing that suffering produces, which brings with it the opportunity for us to turn to God, it's what suffering, that moment of suffering, when you enter into suffering, what that suffering faces you with, that in that suffering is a pregnant opportunity for you to turn to God is the meaning of suffering. Pain is a test. Pain and suffering in our lives is a test that comes with it a pregnant opportunity for us to turn to God to, as Merton writes, to consecrate our suffering or to make it sacred, to, make it, to, to take our suffering and devote it to God. That's the true test. He writes this in his book. He says, when a man suffers... When a man suffers, he is most alone. Therefore, it is in suffering that we are most tested as persons. In suffering, in my own life, when I suffer, there is no other time that I feel more alone and more isolated than when I suffer. Recently, my wife and I were in a meeting. We were both sharing about parts of suffering in our own lives and what we both individually shared and where we weren't like really connecting and life was like she was isolated in her suffering and I was isolated in my suffering and we couldn't like bridge the gap. And that's what's so frustrating about suffering. It's so isolating. You feel so alone and then when you actually find someone who's suffering through the same thing you are suffering with, you felt like you found a true friend. You don't feel alone anymore. You're like, wait, you too? No way. Suffering is the most isolating lonely feeling that we have. And so Merton says, it's suffering is when we're most tested as persons. Suffering and pain, unlike anything else in the human experience, tests us and it proves us. Peter writes, the disciple of Jesus who later became an apostle, he writes, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you. Suffering's a test. Suffering tests you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate and the sufferings of Christ. James, the brother of Jesus, who later became an apostle, says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Trials, tests, because you know that the testing of your faith 
produces, if you go through testing rightly the way God wants you, it produces a perseverance for you. And you have to let that suffering and perseverance finish its work. We want out of suffering like that. We, just want, it, we want it to be done with. But James writes, no, let it have its perfect work. Let it finish itself so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Paul, a follower of Jesus and an apostle, writes this in Romans. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance, character, and character, hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Okay, so what are all these New Testament writers saying? It's almost If you read through the New Testament, it is almost as if the New Testament writers are all saying this. Suffering is essential to the the Christian life. Suffering is essential to the Christian life. Can I welcome you to church really fast? Just like, hi, welcome to church. Suffering is essential to the Christian life. I'm, okay, so if you're new to the church, I'm so glad you're here on this sermon, because if like, if someone sold you this thing, it's like, Okay, when you become a Christian, like it's your, all of a sudden, all your problems go away. And everything is awesome. It's like the Lego movie theme song. It's like all that you wake up and you're like, oh my gosh, this is, the, this is what life in Christ is. It's not at all. Suffering is a part of the Christian story. It is an essential to the Christian life. If you are suffering, all the writers of the New Testament say, rejoice, count it all joy, be glad, glory in it. I don't, I, don't, I don't meet anyone, anyone who does this today, who suffers and goes, man, I praise God I'm suffering. This is so good. No, we all want out, all of us, me included. Like as soon as I start suffering, I'm like, okay, what do I have to take? What do I have to do? I'm out of this. I can't do this anymore. I, I think I've told you this before. One time my doctor was like, I, I was, had this like acid reflux thing going on. It's like really gross. I'm sorry. And... Um, She's like, okay, you need, to, you need to go on diet. You can't have any, um, any spicy food, any fatty food, any, um, any like, uh, uh, tobacco, any um, uh, alcohol, um, and any uh, salty food. And I'm like, and I literally wrote, I have a fate worse than death. I wrote that to her on an email. <laughs> Why would you do this to me? Why? I don't want to live. Like, I, I, was, I literally felt that way, and she's just like, haha, what are you? Are you just do this. You're going to be okay. You're going to make, like, like as soon as I, I, I do, I suffer in my life. And not even, like, Peter's writing to an audience who's suffering because they're Christian. We suffer because we ate too much pizza. <laughs> and we're like, why, God? Like, this is my life? It's so hard. It's so, life, why? Like, that's, we suffer, and we, we don't rejoice in our sufferings. We don't. Not even, like, even the good ones. The silly stuff we suffer for, we don't even rejoice. But suffering, if you read the letters are, of the New Testament, are a part, and Christian writing are a part, are essential to the Christian life. And this is, what they're write, this is what they're saying. They're actually saying over and over again in New Testament writings that suffering, our suffering is essential to the Christian life. See, there's a false storyline going around in, in, in the church, in the Christian world, West world, I would say, that basically says this, Christ suffered so you don't have to. That's what we, we kind of we believe that. I mean, I would imagine a lot of us in here believe this to some extent. That's why we're surprised when suffering comes upon us. 
We're like, oh my gosh, why is this happening? I'm like a Christian. This is not supposed to be this way. Like I'm supposed to be like for justice and shalom and peace and I'm doing all this stuff and then I'm getting all this suffering. It doesn't, doesn't make, I must not be doing something right. And we think, well, Christ suffered. I don't have to suffer. That's the storyline. Christ did it all. I don't have to do anything. And this is like the, the, the subversive storyline. And I would say that's cheap and false and not true to the scriptures and not true to the human experience. It's wrong. We should cross it out. Everybody strike through that. Christ suffered. You don't have to. It's not true. It's better said like this. Suffering is at the heart of the Christian faith. Suffering is at the heart of the Christian faith. We have to learn this. Like my prayer for you today was that you would arm your mind and your heart for suffering because it's at the heart of the Christian faith. The Christian story, at the heart of the Christian story, is a suffering God, is a God who suffers, and he suffered for you. Mark um, chapter 8. This is before Peter writes this beautiful letter in 1 Peter. Before Peter was the, the Peter of 1 Peter, he was Peter, the man who stuck his foot in his mouth all the time. Okay, and, I, and we shared this when we first started this. We went through some of his things, his story. But I want to go through a particular story that we have not been through yet in this series. In Mark chapter 8, if you have a Bible, please you flip there real quick. Mark chapter 8 is to the left. Um, the New Testament goes Matthew, Mark. It's that Mark. So it's Matthew, Mark, right there. Mark chapter 8. Skip down to where the small letter, numbers say 27, verse 27. Let me read you this, this story here. Peter, before he penned the letter, he was a young follower of Jesus, and he followed Jesus for about three years as a disciple. And he had this storyline, too, that when we follow Christ, it leads to ultimate glory, and there's no suffering on the road of discipleship. There's no suffering at all on the road to discipleship. Now, some scholars believe that Peter actually wrote Mark, and Mark just basically recounted Peter's story. And this whole book of Mark is all about what it means to follow Jesus. And we come to the, to the like, the, almost the climax of his whole book here in chapter 8. And in chapter 8, we learn all about Jesus, and we learn all about his, his miraculous deeds and all this stuff, and we're almost given this picture of who Christ is as being the man who can walk on water and call storms and feed the 5,000 and raise the dead and do these things. And then in chapter 8, we get a clearer picture of who he is, but no one else sees it. Look at verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? Who are they saying? What are they saying about me? What are people talking about? What are they, you know, like, whatever. On, when, when you hear things in the news and you hear things that uh, people are saying about what I've been doing, what are they saying? And they, they replied, some say you're John the Baptist. Now, remember, John the Baptist had been beheaded. So there, there's somehow there's like supernatural things like you're the resurrected John the Baptist. Some say Elijah, Elijah was taken up on a flaming chariot. So somehow you're, you're like the supernatural, you've come back from the Old Testament somehow. And others, you're one of the prophets. Now what they're saying is that you are actually the greatest. This is the language they would have used. You are, the, on a human level, you're the greatest human figure that we could think of. We can compare you to John the Baptist because he was the greatest. We can compare you to Elijah. We can compare you to one of the prophets like Moses. You are probably the greatest human to ever walk the earth. That's what they were saying. H.G. Wells um, said, I'm a historian. I'm not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that the penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. Now, he's not a Christian. 
He's not a believer, but he's saying, he's saying kind of what everyone else is saying. You're the most dominant figure in human history, greater than everyone else. Like you're all themselves the supernatural aura about you. But that's not good enough for Jesus. He like presses in further. Okay, that's what they're saying. You've been with me the closest. Who do you say that I am? And so he says in verse 29, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered. This is our Peter. This is our boy. Remember? Okay, he wrote First Peter. Peter, our dude, right? You are the Messiah. You are the Christos. You are Christ. You are the anointed one of God. This is what all would have been in that word, Messiah. You are the anointed one of God. You're the one that everyone's been waiting for. You are the Savior. You are the true king, the king to end all kings, the king of kings, the king to restore all things back and put all things right again. That's what Messiah means. You are the one we've been waiting for. You are the hope. Now, Matthew, when he retells this story, Jesus turns to him and says, um, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven did. He has this like divine insight about who Jesus is. And then M- Peter's looking at Jesus like, you are the Messiah. And by definition, the Messiah is a conqueror. He's a winner. When he calls Jesus Christ the Messiah, he was saying, you're going to win. You're going to conquer our enemies. You're going to a throne. The Messiah was supposed to be destined for glory and honor. You are going to a throne. We are following you. And I'm going to sit at your right hand. And all the other disciples are like, no, I'm going to do it. And they were arguing about who's going to sit on the right and who's going to sit on the left because Jesus was going to a throne. That's what they thought. Okay, next sentence. Check this out. This is where it gets pretty crazy. Look at verse 30. I just love this sentence. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. This is um, one of Mark's um, narrative devices is uh, called a secret messianic motif where Jesus is like secret. He doesn't really tell anyone who he is because they don't get a full picture of him yet. And that's a classic example here. He's like, you're the Messiah. And he's like, don't tell anyone because what you think I am, I'm not. And we're going to prove that in the next sentence. Look at this, verse 31. And he began to teach them. Here it is. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the Lord who's going to set everything right again. And then Jesus said, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must, what? What does it say? Suffer. I must suffer many things and be rejected by elders and chief priests and the teachers of the law, the most respected people in their minds in that day. And I must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. He's like, listen guys, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. I'm going to be rejected, but in three days I will rise again. Okay, here's our boy again. Verse 33, or verse 32. He spoke plenty about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Okay, so Jesus is like, I'm the Messiah. He's like, you're right, I am the Messiah. And I'm gonna suffer, and I'm gonna die. I'm gonna be crucified and rejected, but three days rise again, and Peter's like, time out. And he pulls Jesus aside, and rebuke is the same word used when Jesus rebukes, when he rebukes um, uh, evil spirits and he says I rebuke you in, the, in, in my name come out of him like that sort of rebuke like, like he does to uh, evil spirits so Peter pulls Jesus aside and like Jesus come here alright listen you're not gonna die <laughs> like I I've got a sword like a sword like I got you like stop saying this stuff like you're getting paranoid like, so you need to keep focused you're the Messiah say it with me Messiah. Like, he, he rebukes him. He, like, pulls him aside and is like, listen, that's not how it's going to go down. You are the Messiah. Stop talking about this death talk. Stop talking about this rejection talk. You're better than them. You're going to go in Jerusalem. You're going to ride in. People are going to fall at their faces, and you're going to take that throne. Say it with me. Take that throne. Take that throne. 
so I just want to stop here real fast. Can I just tell you that this, 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 like, this Peter narrative is actually subversively in the church, especially in the West? Like, Jesus wins over everyone. Jesus wins over the people that kill him. Like, Jesus wins over ISIS. And Jesus wins over the people that, that try to destroy us in America. People, like, Jesus is vic- a victor over, he's, he's a winner of it all. We have this, like, triumphalist and then Jesus says this to him. But, then, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. It's not good when Jesus calls you Satan. <laughs> Ever. Get behind me, Satan. I mean, it's, 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 it's satanic. It's from hell to think that the road of following Jesus does not include suffering. It's wrong, completely wrong. And he says this, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Your mind is fixed on the triumph that comes from being a man. You, have, you don't have eternal perspective in mind. The plain reading of this is that in Peter's mind, and some of our minds too, the path of following Jesus has no suffering in it. It's all glory, only happiness, only triumph, only victory. That's the road. But that is not the road. Look at the very next thing he says, verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple, my follower, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. What is Jesus saying? If you're going to follow me, it will be on a road of suffering. If you follow me, you will have to take up your cross. I will have my cross. My cross is going to bear the sins of the world. You will have your own cross. But the ro- my road is a road of suffering. You will suffer. Jesus doesn't offer substitutionary suffering. Listen to this. Jesus does not offer substitutionary suffering. He offers substitutionary atonement. He offers, your sins will be put on my body and you'll be free from your sins, atonement. But he doesn't go, I'm gonna suffer, you will never have to suffer. That's not the storyline. Jesus didn't suffer so that we don't have to. Jesus suffered so that when we suffer, we would be like him. Jesus suffered so that when we suffer, we would, Peter uses the word, participate. Peter is so, like he's changed. Okay, this is a different Peter in Mark than it was in 1 Peter. He is so changed by this that he wants to participate. All the writers of the New Testament are like, when you suffer, you actually are becoming like your Lord suffered. And when you suffer, you are like him. See, what happened, this might be kind of confusing for you, so let me back up. Jesus flipped the script on suffering. He flipped it. Suffering was a result and penalty for humanity wanting to be God. It happened in Genesis chapter 3. We want to be God. We usurped our authority over God. Suffering entered the world. Paradise was lost. We now live east of Eden. Okay, that's the story. 
We want to do things our own way without God's loving rule in our life. Suffering was introduced into the world. And there are even Old Testament books like Job and Ecclesiastes that deal with the meaninglessness of suffering. How suffering sometimes seems like it has no meaning. The Coen brothers, who are modern filmmakers, and they make great films, uh, make movies on, based loosely on books of the Old Testament, like No Country for Old Men, which was based on Ecclesiastes, and A Simple Man, which is based on the book of Job. And they deal with the meaninglessness of suffering, the meaninglessness of murder and pain. They, they deal with it. But suffering that seems so random and so meaningless at times, listen, this is how God flipped the script. Suffering that seems so random and so meaningless at times was the very thing that God used to redeem us back to himself. He used suffering that seemed so random and so meaningless to actually redeem us. And he suffered on our behalf on the cross. And now what he does with suffering is he uses the very thing. Suffering is used to make us like him. He redeems suffering. At one point, it was foreign to the world, and now he uses it for his glory. He used it to redeem us. We will suffer, and God says, I'm going to use suffering to make you more like me. See, there's an ancient idea that suffering is useless. There's no, there's no need for suffering. It's meaningless. But that's actually being rejected more and more today, especially with psychologists and sociologists. Are you familiar with the writings of Malcolm Gladwell? He recently wrote a book called David and Goliath, um, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. It's a good book. He writes about, basically this whole book is about the, the people who experience suffering or loss or pain and trials or shortcomings. And their shortcomings or their suffering or their pain or their loss make them stronger. And the actual reason they become so darn successful are because of them, through them. He actually says at one point in the book, courage is not something that you already have that makes you brave when tough times start. Courage is what you earn when you've been through the tough times and you discover they aren't so tough after all. And this whole book's about that. The research actually for this book led him back to faith in Christ. He's spoken very openly about this. It was the suffering with faith in Christ component out in a couple of interviews and research that he did that was most compelling to him and brought him back to faith in Christ. And it's the end of the whole book. So what are, what, what is, what is, how does God use suffering in a practical, let me get real practical real quick. How does God use suffering in practical ways in our lives? Well, first, suffering exposes. Suffering exposes. Suffering has a way of exposing weakness. Suffering has a way of exposing fears. Suffering has a way in our lives to expose unrealistic pride that we are in control of our whole lives. A lot of us in this room are very privileged people. We have our lives planned out for us, and we are bummed when we're a year behind schedule. Like, I, 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 I'm 24, I should have been, like, career and, like, engaged by now, and I'm not. Like, that was my plan in my diary when I was 13, and now I'm a year behind, and this is really frustrating for me. What suffering does is exposes that you're not in control. Suffering has a way. Now, I, I, want you to, I want you to stop and think. When you're in the, in the thralls of suffering, I know it's hard to be rational when you're suffering, but when you're in the midst of suffering, whether you, you're in chronic pain, whether you're in a, a situation of suffering, when you are in suffering, I want you to stop and go, what is this exposing in my life right now about what I believe? 
Is this exposing my fears? Is it exposing my pride? Is this exposing my weakness of faith? Like I don't really trust God. I only really trust God when things are good. When things are good, I'm like, I, I have this narrative. I think God knows what he's doing with my life. My life's good. And when it's bad, you're like, God, do you know what you're doing with my life? I don't think you know what you're doing with my life. Ah, that's you being satanic and having the mind of men, not the mind of God. Do you see? It's you going, God, I know what's best for my life. And it doesn't include this. And Jesus was like, I love you, but get behind me, Satan. You have in your mind the things of men. I have the things in the glory of God. God knows what he's doing. Suffering exposes those things. Suffering can, in a good way, bring out the worst in us so we can deal with it. Also, second, suffering clarifies. When we suffer, it brings things into clarity. We will see that some things have become too important to us. We will suffer and we will realize that Call of Duty was not that big of a deal. (laughs) That finishing all the seasons of Breaking Bad might not have been a huge priority in our lives. Like, suffering has a way of bringing clarity. And suffering strengthens. When times are good, it's easy to follow God. We even assume sometimes when times are good that God knows that what he's doing with our lives because we're so happy. But when trouble and difficult times arise, hard questions about our relationship with God and his, about his intent and even his character come into focus. And going through it right, a sufferer, the sufferer brings about, sees clarity, the purpose of life as a follower of Jesus. And we understand that life is about trusting in Christ. That's where our true strength lies. Ultimate glory. That's where we're headed. I've come to, the reason why I read 1 Peter chapter 3 was because Peter picks up on something that I, to be quite honest and actually to repent before you guys, have not thought that it was this big of a deal. I don't, maybe even my whole life. And it's the, it's, it's the baptism identity that we're given. I'm, I saw this, I saw this um, in this study, um, studying for this and reading and researching this, how important our baptism identity is. How important actually all of the, all the especially the two major sacraments that we do as a church. Do you, I want you to recall right now your baptism when you were baptized. Recall it, remember it. You were given at that moment of your baptism a baptism identity. You made a pledge, you made a promise to God This is what Peter's talking about in chapter three. Look at verse 21. This water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but a pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the middle of suffering, what Peter is saying is like you were baptized. And when you were baptized, you made a pledge, a promise, a prayer of dedication with your body that says, I belong to God. And I am, and that word clear conscience could also be translated consciousness. I have a mindfulness of God in my suffering. I will remember God in my suffering. I vowed my life to God. And in my, in my baptism, what I did was when I went under the waters of baptism, I was identifying with Jesus Christ. I, I don't know how I missed this. I thought, I, I don't, I, I, maybe at the depth of this I missed. You are completely, ident- what you're basically saying is like, I am in Christ and I am going to die. You go under the water. 
and I'm going to raise again. I'm gonna come into new life. That is not just a one-time thing. That is now your life in Christ. You will die and raise again and die and raise again your entire life. That is the narrative life for a Christian. And what is the sacrament that we practice over and over and over again as a church? Communion. And what is communion? Communion is Christ's body broken and Christ's blood poured out and we take that in. The two major parts that we identify with Christ in the church, the two main points of sacrament, have to do with his suffering. We are to always be mindful of Christ's sufferings. We are to identify with him and go, I'm gonna die and through my death will come a resurrection. That's what Peter says here. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through death, resurrection. Through death comes life. And what do we say when we break communion? When we take communion, we do the same thing. His death brings me life. And that is the pattern. I have to remember Christ in my sufferings. We receive an identity when we follow Jesus and are baptized. And the identity is we go from suffering to glory. Suffering to glory. Thomas Merton, who has a a stronger baptism theology than I do, though I want to develop my baptism theology, he says this. This is so good. We get a name at baptism, he writes. We get a name at baptism. That is because the depths of our soul are stamped by that holy sacrament or that holy ritual with a supernatural identification which will eventually tell us who we were meant to be. Our baptism, which drowns us in the death of Christ, summons upon us all the sufferings of our life. Their mission is to help us work out the pattern of our identity received in the sacrament. Stop there. Listen to this. Our baptism, which drowns us in the death of Christ, summons upon us all the sufferings of our life. I want you to think about your baptism real quick. What, what, what baptism identity is, and this is why Peter puts it right in the middle of his section on suffering, is when you went under the water of baptism, it, it almost like recalls all the suffering that you will, your future suffering and your past suffering, and it'll bring all that into the moment, and it'll drown it in the death of Christ, and then it'll give you a new pattern for your life, and your pattern will be from death to life. The pattern of the Christian is from death to life. And you said that. You, you made a pledge to God. I will live my life from death to life. The pattern of my life will be take up my cross and follow Christ. My, the pattern of my life will be I will die, but I will have a resurrection. I will continue to die daily. And God will continue to raise my body from the dead. And if not on this earth, then ultimately in the next. I live in that pattern now, and I'm given that pattern when I'm baptized. I am, the, I am the one. My identity is this. I have died, and I will continue to keep dying. I will even suffer, but I know that through suffering is glory. That is the only path to, suffer, to glory is through suffering. And that is the baptism identity. That is the pattern of the sacrament. He goes on and says this. If, therefore, we desire to be what we are meant to be, and if we become what we are supposed to become, the interrogation of suffering will call forth from us both our own name and the name of Jesus. What he's saying. At baptism, Peter says it's a pledge. It's a pledge to a pattern of living. 
It's from death to life. And when we suffer, we are being interrogated. Lewis says it's a microphone. It's a megaphone. And suffering's interrogation is this. Who are you? You will go through suffering and you will feel like this finger in your chest. Who are you? What do you believe? And it, suffering is an, it, it's an interrogator. It interrogates us. Who are you? What do you believe? What's your hope in? And what it does, what baptism, baptism identity does, it says, I am the one who passes from death to life. I am the one, my identity is the one who passes from death to life over and over and over again, like my Lord. It is pure identification. I identify with Jesus Christ, who went from death to life, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Rejoice. Glory in it, as Paul says. Glory in the fact that you suffer. And when you suffer, may you go through suffering to glory. Suffering is the only way. And that is our identity. That's our identity. We are people who are recalling our baptism identity. Gosh, when I was baptized, I said, Lord, I'm going to follow you from death, through death, to life. And I will continue that pattern the rest of my life over and over and over again. And then when I take communion which is calm union. It's, a, it's like a union with God. When I take communion and I'm united with God, I'm united with Christ at his point of death. Did you ever realize that? When I take the bread and the cup, I'm uniting with Christ at the point of his death. And I'm remembering the death. I'm remembering the suffering. See, what happened in Peter's day is when someone became a Christian, they had to be prepared to die. This is happening right now in our world, by the way. You become baptized, and like, okay, so when you're baptized, you have to be ready to die because you might die for your faith, like for real die. Do you understand what this means? And they would say, yes, I understand. Do you make a pledge to God, the clear conscience, that you'll be mindful of God even in your sufferings? I will. Will you be united with Christ in your sufferings? I will. Then you shall be baptized. And that's what baptism, that's what Peter's talking about here. And he's recalling it. Hey, remember when you were baptized. Remember that you pledged your life to God. You, there, you, there's no way out now. It's through death. It's through suffering. And when you suffer, you're like Christ. When you suffer for righteousness sake, you are more like Jesus. We, church, must suffer. We must. We have to. Suffering, don't be surprised by it. When you go through suffering, if you're, I know that there's plenty of you that are suffering right now. If you are suffering physical ailment, spiritual, does God want to deliver you ultimately? Absolutely. Do you pray for deliverance? Yes. But not as an escape, but through it. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for you are with me. Through it. God, help me go through suffering. Help me suffer with you. And then as I suffer, I want to be identified with my Lord. I want to be identified with my Savior. I want to be like Christ. Christ does not offer substitutionary suffering. But when we suffer, 
we become more like him. Let's pray. God, I, um, I know that there's probably a, a million things that we can ask you right now, or maybe even a million things that we can say. But I, I ask, God, that you, would, um, that you would help us to live into our identity as, though, as those who go through suffering, who will suffer, and you would help us to suffer well. That, God, that you would help us to suffer well. I pray that our suffering right now, maybe there's some things that you're exposing in us in our suffering. And I pray now in the silence of our own hearts and our own soul, God, that we would listen to what suffering is exposing in us, impatience, pride, stubbornness, anger, I pray that those would, in the fire of suffering, would like draw us, rise to the top, and Lord, they'd be repented of, that we would confess them to you and say, Lord, these things are exposing weaknesses. We need to cast our dependence on you. If there's anyone here that that is suffering, and right now it's just bringing clarity, like these things that I worry about are not that important. This is what's truly important. I pray we'd hang on to those things, Lord. And I pray, God, for strength in suffering, that you would strengthen us in our suffering, that we would rejoice, that you would make us persevere, cause us to persevere through suffering and build character in us. I pray that for, for maturity to happen through suffering in this church. I say that, Lord, we, we sometimes don't look for it, but God, I know that you bring it in our lives. It is God's will that we suffer, that we suffer well. Help us, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that through your sufferings, it brings meaning to our own. In Jesus' name, amen.